So here we are in 2 Timothy. Uh, last week, we, we did sort of a, a quick intro to it. If you're reading out of the, the Bible in front of you, it's on page 676. Uh, today, we're going to... And I'm sorry, that's, that's another section that we're going to be in. 689 is where we're at today in 2 Timothy, if you're looking at the Bible and the shoe... I almost said the shoe rack in front of you. I don't know why, but uh, maybe I should go back and sing a few more songs. Uh, <clears throat> anyway... <clears throat> okay, so 2 Timothy is this, the last letter that we know of that Paul wrote. It seems to be that there is plenty of evidence to support the fact that he never wrote another letter after this. He's in jail in a Roman prison. Nero is the emperor. Nero is going to kill him. He knows that. He's crazy. Uh, Nero is. He's, he's done all kinds of crazy things and and a lot of things that he's done, he's found a way to convince the public that it was the Christian's fault that it happened, and that just fuels the fire of saying Christianity is outlawed, and anyone that preaches in the name of Jesus is going to be killed, going to be put to death, going to be put in prison. I don't know why, this is a question mark I have, I don't know why Paul was not killed immediately. I can't figure that out. I can't figure out why Nero knew Paul existed, because he obviously did, that if, if he got wind that this group of Christians was gathering, he would literally get them all together, and then he would, he would put them on stakes and lift them, and while they were still dying from the stake being driven through their body, he would lift them up and then pour tar on them and light them on fire, and that would be sort of the entertainment and then the lights for his own parties. Now, why would he do that for a group of people that were gathering in the name of Jesus, but he let Paul sit in a prison and write some letters? Did that fall under the radar somehow? Did, that just, did he just not know? I don't know. I don't know the answer. But I think it's pretty remarkable. I think it's pretty remarkable that Paul is still alive and during the reign of Nero, and he's able to get this letter out. Because he's able to really encourage Timothy, who he, he even calls a son. He, he has the same kind of love for him that a father would have for a son. And that's something that Paul has seen. Paul obviously had a father. Timothy obviously had a father, but we don't know their names. We don't know anything about them. We do know that Timothy's main influence when it came to the Scriptures came from Paul, but more importantly, and before that, his grandmother and his mother. That's what 1 Timothy 1 tells us. So here he's encouraging Timothy, stay on course. You've got this. It is like this last will and testament. Everything that I've got, I want to pour into you, young man, and you are going to do things. God is going to do things in and through you. Don't lose sight of the goal. Don't step away from this for a second. It's going to be hard. People will hate you for it. You'll probably die for it, but don't let any of that make you quit. That is the theme of the letter. And I read it kind of like how I would hope someday whenever the Lord does call my father home, that's the kind of thing that will be written for me to read as he's challenging me to keep living. But the theme of chapter 1 was Paul being on the defense now. Paul is on the defense and he's saying, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. He's on the defense because this isn't, 
This isn't him telling Timothy, go run towards the gates of hell and storm them. He's saying, don't be ashamed. You're going to get attacked. You're going to be tempted to walk away. You're going to be tempted to sort of hang your head low. You're going to be tempted to lower your standards. You're going to be tempted to look at certain things in your life that you know you shouldn't be doing and still do them. You're going to be tempted to do those things, but don't be ashamed of the gospel, Timothy, and don't be ashamed of my chains. Don't disassociate yourself with leaders who've gone before you and who are rotting in prison because you're going to be tempted to do that. You're going to be tempted to not associate yourself with me, Timothy, because I'm in jail. There's a lot of things I'm sure being said about Paul. The main question that he asks, he doesn't ask it this way explicitly. This is me sort of reading into it a little bit. The main thing that I think Paul's saying is he's asking Timothy to consider this. Why would we ever be ashamed of the only thing that could ever conquer death? And then that thing was given to us. The whole reason that that Jesus died was for us. Why would we ever be ashamed of that? You know, as Americans, we have some pretty dark moments in our history. No sense going through all of them because we'd be here all day. But we have some moments in the history of our country that are not fun to revisit. One of those being when our Vietnam vets came home. And as they came off of their their airplanes and they walked through airports, they got spit on. They got stuff thrown at them. They couldn't find jobs. The homeless population doubled with homeless Vietnam veterans who couldn't find jobs when they came home because once employers found out that they were Vietnam vets and that employer didn't agree with the fact that we sent troops to Vietnam, they made those men blacklisted and they were unhirable. Alcoholism went up. Suicide rates went up. PTSD was called a joke. That's how we treated these men who on their, not because, not because they thought it was a great idea, but because they were told by their country to go and fight a war that maybe they didn't even believe in, but they went and they did it. And because there were people back here that didn't do that and they disagreed with the whole concept of the war, they blamed the men who went and did the fighting. And they treated them like garbage. The 60s and 70s of the United States history is racked with really dark moments. Moments like that, moments like racism. And I wonder sometimes if we could, if we could correlate what Paul's saying in chapter 1 and the way we acted to those veterans. And now we, we, sort of, we sort of lay it on pretty thick with veterans. We're trying to make up for the mistakes of the past, Right? Every politician's a friend of veterans now, right? Because it's the in vogue thing. And I think it would be us asking the question, if we were level-headed, if I'm looking at Kurt, who is a Vietnam veteran, and I'm saying, why would I ever treat him like that when he went? He got told to go, and he went, and he did something that maybe he didn't even philosophically agree with. And maybe he had to do things that he didn't ever see himself doing. And maybe he's got to deal with that the rest of his life. Why would I be ashamed of him for that? Why would I be ashamed of someone who was willing to give his life to save and preserve my freedom? Doesn't it feel shameful to even think about that? I hope it does. And to a greater extent, that is Paul's point. 
in the first chapter. Really, that's what echoes through the whole letter of 2 Timothy. Jesus came and conquered death on your behalf. Why would you ever be ashamed of that? Why would you ever not live in that? And he tells Timothy, basically, Timothy, if you do it as the leader, so will your people to an even greater extent. Never do it and never make them feel like it's okay. That's essentially the theme of the letter. That's how he starts. Now, it sounds like he's on the, on the offense, but he's on the defense. Paul is about to, in chapter 2, we're going to look at today, go into an offensive stance on this. So if you thought Paul was being aggressive in chapter 1, buckle up, because he doesn't go back to defense the rest of the letter. So look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 with me. Let's read that. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 1, we're going to read through verse 13. Paul writes this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is him going back to something that he said in the book of Ephesians. Uh, Just going to look at this real quick. You don't have to go there. But in verse 13 of chapter 6 in Ephesians, Paul says this. He's talking about the armor of God. He lays out the armor of God. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. After you've put on the full armor of God, you are able to stand firm. He's he's echoing back to this, this letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus. By the way, who is leading the church in Ephesus? Anyone else? Timothy. Timothy's heard this before. He's read the letter already. He has the instructions. So when Paul is subtly referencing something that's in the book of Ephesians, maybe that's a hard trail for us to follow, but it wouldn't have been for Timothy. He's already read this stuff. He's already, he knew the letter. So a follower of Christ must stand. He gives four examples. A follower of Christ, a, a lover of Jesus, a recipient of the power and authority of the gospel, someone who's living in this gracious gift of Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection, someone who's living with the power of the Holy Spirit living inside them, you must stand against tyranny. And here's how you do it. Four examples he gives, just as illustrations. Stand as a son, verses 1 and 2. 
He refers to Timothy as a son. He interacts with Timothy as, as a father would a son. And he basically says, take what you know is true in these first two verses. And he says, do two things with it. As a son, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take the teachings of your father. You're going to take the teachings of truth. You're going to do two things with them, Timothy. You're going to stand confident. He goes back to Ephesians. Put on the armor of God. You know you are protected because you know death has been defeated. So when Satan, who has already lost, comes after you, you have protection. You are equipped. You are guarded. You can take it blow after blow after blow, and you know that you will not lose. This fight is already won. You can handle it time and time and time again. And when you do fight back, Timothy... Remember the word of God. It is your offensive weapon. So take what you know is true and you stand firm. Take what you have heard and you stand firm. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Then he says, and what you have heard from many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This goes back to instruction that Moses gave the people as they were wandering through the wilderness. And for 40 years, they have the law now. The law is to point them to their brokenness. They have all of this. And one of the things that Moses equips the people with is he says, talk about this stuff. Talk about the stories. Talk about the redemptive moments. Talk about the, the wandering through the Red Sea. Talk about the pillar of fire. Talk about these things. Talk about food that came down from heaven. Talk about water that came from a rock. Never stop telling the stories of how Jesus, of how God saved us. Never stop telling stories. Write them on your wrists. Put them on your forehead. Never stop telling. When you're walking with your kids, tell them. When you're, when you're sitting at the dinner table, tell these stories. Never stop telling the stories of how God redeemed you as a people. That's what Moses says to the people in Deuteronomy. And this is the same message that Paul is telling Timothy. Never stop telling those stories. As a matter of fact, take it one step further. Sit down with people who can be entrusted with this, people who are hungry for it. You know who they are, Timothy. They're the ones who are committed to this thing called Jesus. They are committed. So don't let them just sit and soak. Invest in them. Throw this into them. Pour it into them because they can be entrusted with it. And they're the ones who are going to take it and take it to the next level. Adam LaRue is a direct result of people pouring into him, one of them being his father-in-law. I am a direct result of someone pouring into me because they thought at some point the Word of God can be entrusted into this young man. The Word of God can be poured into this young man and he's going to do something good with it because he loves Jesus. Now, I wouldn't agree with that assessment when I was 17 years old, but somebody else did. And they did something with it. They poured it into me, and it changed my life. I'm a result of someone pouring into me. If we're not doing that, we're not heeding the advice, the commands, the love of Jesus. We're not taking that and pouring it into others. We are disobeying God. If this is the only place where we expect truth to be expounded into our own hearts, we're missing out on huge amounts of blessing. 
we need to meet with each other over coffee and over Chick-fil-A or wherever you're going to meet, in your living room, in your dining room, in your dorm room. I don't care where you meet, but meet with each other and infuse this truth into each other. Take someone who you know is hungry for the gospel, and even if you don't know what to do with it, be clumsy about it. It's okay. Grace has changed you. Allow it to be invested into somebody else. And if you have questions, find someone that's above you on the ladder rung and ask them to help you. This isn't something that you're expected to just know by yourself. The church doesn't grow if we only meet on Sundays, folks. The church doesn't grow if we only see each other once a week. And I'm not talking about Journey Church. I'm talking the American church, the church universal, the church all over the world. The gospel of Jesus doesn't expand if we think the best way to do it is to sit down and call each other a family for one hour a week. So Paul says, my son, how lousy of a father would I be if I sat down with you once a week and for one hour taught you all the things you need to know to be a successful human being. And then I close the book, and we don't talk again for six days. And then the next week, we get together, we sit down for an hour, and I tell you the things you need to know to be a successful human being, to be a responsible adult. And then at the end of that, we'll sing some songs together, son, just you and me. And then we'll close the book, and we won't meet again for another week. You're on your own. So what Paul's essentially saying here, and the analogy of father to son, is you have been poured into, you have been invested in. Duplicate it. Find faithful men. And by men there, just so you know, it's not gender specific. Find faithful men. Find faithful women. Invest in moments like this Bible study that just happens to meet in my house. That's a moment that you, you just need to savor it. If you can, savor it and do it. If you can't, find some other place to do it. Know the Word, and then as you digest it, you will grow. And as you grow, you can invest that into somebody else. That's what this analogy is all about. Stand firm. Be confident. Know that you're protected through the power of the Spirit. And then invest and entrust that into others. The next thing he says is you stand as a soldier. Now, this one would have meant a lot to Paul. He's probably chained to a Roman soldier at this point in time. Most people believe that that's how the Romans did their prison. You weren't actually maybe you weren't in a cell per se. You were just in a dungeon, and whenever the shift changed happened, you would get unchained from one Roman guard and get chained to the next one. So most scholars believe that when Paul was writing the armor of God part in, in the book of Ephesians in that letter, which he's also in prison at that time too, he's probably looking at a Roman guard and seeing his armor and thinking about how that armor protects that Roman guard in battle and then correlating that over to what we have what we have been provided through Jesus. So a soldier, verse 3 and 4, Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He reminds him that you are at a war here. 
you are at war with Satan. The more aggressive we are in battle, Timothy, the more, the more that produces conflict. The more conflict that is produced through us battling with the enemy, the more casualties there will be. The more suffering there will be, the more conflict there will be. But one way to endure it, Timothy, is to prepare, to be ready. In 1998, in September 1998, it was almost 20 years ago now, I left for basic training, and I weighed 229 pounds and could barely do 13 push-ups. I was a slug. So I got there, and immediately, I, the reason I knew I could barely do 13 push-ups is because you had to do at least 13 good ones to get sent down from your training battalion where you get your, your vaccinations and your uniform and all that stuff and get sent down to your actual training battalion. And so I had gone with these guys, and if I didn't do that 13th push-up, I was going to have to stay until I could do 13 push-ups and get sent down with another group of guys. But I didn't want to do that, so I muscled through and I did my 13th push-up. Yay, you know. So I get down there, the first thing they do is they just start barking at me. They're saying horrendous, horrible things in my ears, uh, trying to break me down, right? Well, I just thought it was funny. So the hardest thing I had to do was not laugh at them because that just made it worse if I did. Because they were saying such ridiculously horrendous things in my ears that I was just like, <clears throat> and then, then it was like, oh, you think I'm funny? You think I'm a comedian? You know, blah, 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 right here, right here, right? Just complete, like, shock. I, and then they put me in the Chub Club. So every morning I had two glasses of water and a, gla- and a bowl of lima beans for breakfast. For lunch I get two glasses of water and a bowl of black-eyed peas. And for dinner I could eat whatever I wanted as long as I could scarf it down in less than a minute which I got pretty good at. If you've ever eaten with me, I'm still pretty good at it. So I went through this whole thing. At the end of it, at graduation, I had lost 60 pounds. I was at 169 pounds. I've never been that thin again. That's how much my legs weigh today, I think. But I remember coming home for Christmas, and my wife, who's now my wife, we were dating at the time, she gives... She gives me a hug, and she could touch her elbows behind my back. Now that's like the meter because now she's like here, you know, someday, maybe, Adam. Anyway. I kept wondering to myself, like, I'm, I'm sticking this out. I'm, gonna, I'm not quitting at this. But at times the thing that was, was making me endure was I knew there were so many people that knew how lazy I was before I left saying, actually, some of them making bets how long I would last before I just dropped out and was done and got sent home. And that's what was really driving me, if I'm being honest. But, but the, I kept asking myself, why do they do it like this? The first two weeks are called total control. You do nothing unless they tell you you can. You don't write a letter. You don't eat. You don't go to the bathroom. You don't brush your teeth. You don't take a shower. You do nothing until someone tells you to break formation and do it. And they give you a set amount of time to get it done. Okay, everyone, get dressed. Go. You have 30 seconds. At the end of 30 seconds, you're back in formation, hopefully dressed. Because whatever you got put on, that's what you're going to go do PT in. So if you got your shorts and your T-shirt on but no socks, no shoes, that's what you were going running in. And so that's how it went. It was just this like break you down, break you down, break you down. And I couldn't figure out why. 
And then when we got into our actual courses where they teach you your job, I was a military police officer, and so once they, they get you into that, they start treating you like a human. And, uh, and now they, they've basically broke you down to the point where you will obey at an order without ever thinking of asking why, and now they're going to train you how to do your job. They reprogrammed you. You didn't even know it was happening. You just thought you were being treated like garbage, but they reprogrammed you. Why? Because if you can endure the training, you can endure the conflict. If you can endure this training, you can endure the conflict. One of my favorite uh, books is We Were Soldiers Once and Young. It's written by Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore. It was depicted in a movie, We Were Soldiers, with Mel Gibson. If you have a chance to watch it, it's a phenomenal war movie. But there's a scene in it where they load up all the officers. The officers weren't known for being the best of the best, but, but uh, Hal Moore wanted to change that. So he lines them all up in an airport hangar, and he introduces himself, and the sergeant major that's going to serve with him that's played by Sam Elliott. It's perfect, character, perfect casting. Anyway, uh, and he says, Well, I hope, you, I hope you young officers love training. Because me and the sergeant major, we love it. And then the rest of the next 10 minutes of movie is them being brutally trained running up and down mountains and just brutal amounts of training. Why? Because if they could endure the training, they could endure the conflict. And they knew what they were leading their men into, and they wanted them to be ready for it. Paul's saying the exact same thing. If you can endure the training, you can endure the conflict. If you can endure this equipping, if you can endure it, then you can endure the conflict. Napoleon was a strong leader in the French army. He was short. And there are lots of people that wonder how he had such a command over his men, but he did. The story is told that someone was asking how much influence Napoleon had over his army, and he marched his colonnade up to the edge of a cliff. And when he gave the order, the whole first row walked off of the cliff. And he looked at the person who asked the question, and he gave the order again, and the second row walked off of the cliff. And he looked at the person who asked the question and essentially said, do you want me to keep going? Because they'll keep going if I tell them to. That was the command he had over his troops. Listen to this commentary. It was written by a, a since-past Grace Brethren pastor, Dean Federoff was his name, and he wrote this, soldiers are oftentimes drafted into the armies of this world, and they serve, not for the love or honor of their commander, but because they have no choice. By contrast, God's soldiers are an all-volunteer army, and our service must be because of a desire to please him who has chosen us to be soldiers. The great goal of the soldier of the Lord is to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We're to, we need to be to the point where when God says go, we go. That's what he's equipping Timothy with. He's saying when God gives this man a call, Timothy, when he gives a man a call to go and do and be, he does it. No questions asked. No hemming and hawing. No wondering whether it's right or wrong. No getting 4,000 different people to give you their opinion on it. If we know what God's leading us to do, we do it. Now, that doesn't mean that God's going to call you to the deepest, darkest parts of, of the world that haven't seen the gospel yet. It might mean that's what's going to happen. But you know what it does mean for every one of us? That God has called us to obedience. 
That God has called us to listen to the word, listen to what he said, look at how his son modeled it, and then do it. We're called to obey. We're called to express our love for our creator through redemption. He has given us redemption of sins. And because we have received that gift, our response is love for him because we can't imagine life without him. And in that love, we obey him because we know he has provided for us something that no other entity could ever provide us. So when we know it's wrong, we stop doing it. When we know it's not right, we don't do it. When we know we shouldn't say what we're about to say, we don't say it. When we know we shouldn't be with this person or go this place or whatever the scenario is, we obey because that's what love does. It expresses itself in obedience. And it failed in the garden. And that's how we got in this mess in the first place. So, when we have Jesus, as a good soldier, we take this and we fight against the enemy with our armor on. And the best way to fight that is to wear the armor, trusting that it's been provided for us. It's been given to us by grace. And we have this protection against an enemy that is already lost. And in his losing, he wants to take as many people down with him as he possibly can. He wants us to doubt God's goodness. He wants us to doubt God's authority. He wants us to doubt and find gray areas in the Bible that don't exist. He wants us to argue over things that we shouldn't argue over. He wants us to get entrapped in things that don't reflect his glory. Just like Paul is telling Timothy, a good soldier doesn't get himself entangled in civilian pursuits. He stays the course. He follows his orders. He does his job. Satan's over here saying, no, 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 no. Like that thing right there, you need to get embattled in that. You need, to, you need to argue about that on Facebook because that'll make Jesus look bad in the long run. No, go ahead, do it. Because that's obviously where the world needs to know your opinion is social media. Somehow we've all bought that lie. That the world needs to know what I believe and that's why I'm going to post on social media. Everybody writes an awesome blog these days. At least that's what they think. So we get wrapped up in these things that don't reflect God's glory, whether it's sin, whether it's my own opinions, and all of those things distract from what we were called to do. And you know what? We might have different things dangling in front of our face, but Timothy had the same kinds of temptations dangling out in front of him, these low-hanging fruits of temptation. And, he, and Paul was saying, don't do it. Because a good soldier doesn't get wrapped up in that stuff. He stays the course. He obeys. The next thing he says is be like an athlete. In verse 5, he says an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. There's no shortcuts here, Timothy. There's no faking it when you're around other people that say they believe what you believe and then doing whatever you want outside of that. There's no faking it. There's no shortcuts. An athlete only gets crowned if he follows the rules, if he does what's required of him, and he doesn't try to take shortcuts. I lived through what I believed at the time to be one of the greatest athletes to ever be an athlete. His name was Lance Armstrong. This dude was insane. He won 13 Tour de France on a bicycle. Now, if you knew what that meant, that is miles, hundreds and hundreds of miles, very little rest on a bicycle. And he won the thing 13 times. 
five years after his last title, and he had retired, and he started an organization to fight cancer, and all of these things. He is, he is like a hero. Comes out that he cheated. Pretty much his whole career. He had his blood doped so he could perform better. So he was able to live in the limelight for a while, but then he had to eat the crow of being a disgraced cheater. That's how the world will remember him. So the world might have thought that he won the prize, but then when the truth came out, he won nothing. We live in a broken world, so he's still probably a millionaire, but he's not happy. He doesn't have the respect of the people he once had. And he really, at the end of the day, won nothing. So the goal of the athlete is to stand before the one who's heading up the games, and that one heading up the game says, you have won, you are the champion, well done. So our goal is to run this race effectively, pursuing Christ, obeying Him, and someday we will stand before our Creator, the one who has overseen this whole thing, and He will look us in the eye and say, you have completed your race. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That is the goal of a Christian. Anything that doesn't lead to that end is a lie. Anything that the church throws out at us that doesn't lead to that end is a lie. The next thing he throws in can be a little hard to correlate because we go from a son to a soldier to an athlete to a farmer. But in verse 6 and 7, he says this, It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It's almost like Paul says, I know that one's going to throw you off, but you'll get it. A farmer works hard because he knows what it will lead to, a good harvest. If a farmer does these things, barring a weather disaster he doesn't have any control over or a pest that he doesn't have any control over, if he does what is required of him and works hard to control the land and take care of the things that are entrusted to him, he will have a good harvest. But he knows he has to work hard to do it. And what Paul is saying is that farmer deserves to be able to eat some of the things that he grew, some of the best things. He works hard because his life depends on it. The farmer works hard because his livelihood, the life he has built up for himself, it depends on the success of the farm. If the farm doesn't succeed because the farmer is lazy, no one associated with the farm succeeds because of the farmer's laziness. So work hard. It's a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. He transitions in verse 8 through 10, and he says this. In verse 8, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says, remember Jesus. 
Remember Jesus. Never forget Jesus. Jesus embodied all of the previous examples that I just gave Timothy. He fulfilled all the prophecy. He was the seed of David, King David. People know this guy. People know the history. Do you realize that how, how improbable it was that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in a, in a barn, essentially, and still be the seed of King David? Well, Timothy, he was. Don't forget who he is. Don't forget what he accomplished. Don't look past it. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Don't forget that, Timothy. Don't look past it. Don't think that once you grapple with the deeper understandings of theology, it's time to move on to the next burning topic. Never forget Jesus. Never take your eyes off of the fact that He died for you. He embodied all of this. Everything that you're being challenged to be, He already was. And then the next thing that he asks Timothy to focus in on is himself. He tells Timothy to endure hardships. Well, who was a better person to embody that advice than Paul himself? You know the name John Bunyan. He was a pastor, a, a preacher, a teacher uh, back in the 1600s. He wrote a story called, um, an allegory called Pilgrim's Progress. It's beautiful. If you get a chance to read it, pick it up. I think you can download it for free for a Kindle and for an, uh, an iPod or an iPad if you want to read it. It's a beautiful allegory of a Christian's journey from understanding who Jesus is to standing in His presence. But he got arrested for being a Christian. Now John Bunyan, as he's sitting in prison, noticed that there were people who, who loved Jesus and wanted to hear more about Him, found out what prison he was in, and they would gather outside of this little barred window where he was housed in his jail. So every day he would go over to that window and he would preach. And crowds would gather outside of the prison wall and they would, they would stand outside of this little barred window and they would listen to John Bunyan preach to them and teach them the power of the gospel. He would endure that hardship and he wouldn't let anything slow him down. Well, the prison got tired of it. The powers that be got tired of it. So they backed everybody away and they built a wall in front of the window. So John Bunyan knew that the people were gathering outside of the wall, so he just started preaching out of his window even louder. And the Word of God would travel out that window, up over the wall, and into the ears of the saints who took that same gospel and spread it all over Europe. I think that's a beautiful picture of enduring hardships. And I think if our hardships, as far as maybe someone at work harassing you for being a believer or whatever, if we start to compare we're really talking apples to oranges, aren't we? But we have to deal with hardship-wise and persecution-wise and what the early church had to deal with, what the Reformation believers had to deal with. In verse 11 and 12, Paul says this, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure... We will also reign with Him. And I'll stop there for a second. 
So this is what Paul's doing. He knows that Timothy's a young guy. He knows that Timothy's a young leader. He probably knows that Timothy's prone to ask this question that we all ask from the time we can learn how to speak till the day we die. Why? Why? He knows that somewhere in Timothy, he's asking that question, why? Why? Why does it have to be hard? Why are they going to attack me? Why do I have to persist? Why? And Paul reminds him of two things. One, because you have eternal life. Because you have died to yourself. And death to yourself equals life with Christ. And that is the perfect equation no matter how you slice it, Timothy. You have died to yourself. This body that you're in may die, it may suffer, but you, have, you are alive in Christ. The parts about you that will live on for eternity will live on for eternity in Jesus' presence. You have that promise. You have life. So why? That's why. And then he reminds him of his royalty. He reminds us thousands of years later of our royal standing. We are all in the royal family. Anyone get wrapped up in the royal wedding whenever it was on a few years back? Anyone here want to admit the fact that we got up at like 3 o'clock in the morning and watched it? Anybody? Nobody did? Wow, I was the only one. No, I'm kidding. I didn't watch it. Some reason royalty kind of fascinates us in this culture because we don't really know what it looks like. A lot of the popular shows that are winning awards in this season are ones that go back to the era where royalty still sat and, and it still meant something. Royalty means something, and in Timothy's day, it definitely would have meant something because royalty is what put Paul in prison and was going to execute him. So he reminds Timothy of his royal standing. If we endure Timothy, we will also reign with him. We will stand and, at the right hand of the Father, and we will reign with the Son. We are rightful heirs to the full inheritance of Jesus. The family fortune of God is yours, Timothy. That's why you endure. That's why you obey. Because the promises of God have been fulfilled in Jesus and then given to you. And out of love and respect and obedience to the entity that sacrificed for you and gave you something you could never get on your own, you obey and you live, and you endure, and you teach, and you preach, and you don't stop. Why? Because that's what 100% commitment looks like, Timothy. But listen, listen, Timothy, if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he'll remain faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Some remain faithless. Timothy, some will doubt. Don't let it be you, is what he's saying. And the other thing that I think Paul's saying is just because you might doubt or lack faith doesn't change who God is. Our questions about God's character in a dark moment that we walk through don't change who God is. And God is strong enough, and He's big enough, 
to handle our doubts. He is strong enough and big enough to handle our questions. I remember when Megan and I lost a baby between Isaiah and Toby. I remember feeling at times like I was mad at him and was just bawling my eyes out, pounding my fists on his chest, and he didn't move. That was the picture, an active picture I got in my brain one night. I was so angry at God. I didn't think I necessarily deserved the baby, but I definitely didn't deserve to lose it. Why'd you give it in the first place? If you're just going to pluck it away from my wife, and I'm going to have to sit here in a hospital room, and I'm going to have to watch her get these medicines put in her, and then you're going to I'm going to have to watch them take the baby out. I can't even look at it. No, I'm angry. And I remember feeling like there was no place where I was allowed to feel that way. Until that night, I was in my garage, and I was bawling my eyes out, and I was so pissed off. And that was all. All of it was targeted right at God. I was so mad at him. I was standing there, and I'm pounding on his chest. I'm feel, I feel like he's standing in the garage with me, and I'm pounding on his chest, and tears are streaming down my face. And, then, and you know what I felt like he said to me? It's okay. You go right ahead. I can take it. I can take it. Just don't leave. Just don't leave. So I kept pounding away. And eventually, you know what I experienced? I was kind of exhausted at being angry. I was kind of exhausted at feeling doubt. And I just wanted to feel love and grace. I just wanted to be reminded of truth. And nothing was more clear to me in that moment than he was who he said he was. Because he never budged. He never budged. And man, I gave him a beating. You see, he remains faithful even when we're faithless because he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his own power, his own promises, and his own presence, and he won't. So church, let me be the... Let me be very clear here. You're allowed to doubt. You're allowed to lose your faith at times. But don't ever think that that changes who God is and how much He loves you. And don't ever walk away thinking that He doesn't love you. Stay there and do battle with Him. Because I guarantee He will win. He will win you over again. He will win your heart again. And if it's the hundredth time, if it's the billionth time, if it's the one hundred billionth time, Go back. Stay the course. Endure the hardship. He will not change. His promises will remain. So the question remains then, how then will we live? How are we going to live? Will we be the kind of people that abandon truth? Does it hurt? Are we going to be people that take the pieces of this whole thing called being a Christian and make it fit our own decisions and what's convenient and good for us? Or are we going to take God at His word and say, you know what? Obedience is going to cost me something, but obedience for Jesus cost Him everything. 
So yeah, it's going to cost you something. And when we make dumb decisions, it costs us something usually to get out of them. So make today the day that we stop pursuing sin and start pursuing righteousness. Because He's immovable. He hasn't gone anywhere, and He's not going to. If there's any movement between the relationship with you and God, you're the one that moved. So don't make today another day of distance. Come back and say, I'm going to be committed, and I'm going to duke this thing out, and I'm going to fight. Because the definition of a fool in this context is someone who knows the truth, walks out the door, and says, I don't care. So don't be a fool. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your unending, tireless love for us. Father, we are not worthy recipients, that's for sure. But if you left the grave behind you, so will I. Just like you did a hundred billion times. Father, your love for us is unending. So I pray that today we, as your church, as your bride, want to be spotless and don't want sin to rule the day. Allow us to want to leave here today lined up with the winning team.